Sometimes it takes an outsider to bring a country together. Coming up, author Sarah Val explains how the Marquis de Lafayette helped to unify the United States after a divisive presidential election in 1824. Because he was a Frenchman and he came over as a teenager to volunteer with Washington's army, he kind of belonged to everybody. He wasn't a northerner or a southerner. When Hiram Bingen went looking for the lost city of the Incas back in 1911, he got more than he bargained for when he stumbled upon the royal site of Machu Picchu. The thing that he did, though, that was so smart was he brought his camera with him. And get tips for touring the distilleries and tasting rooms of Scotland like a connoisseur. The fascination of the whiskies is that go from area to area, distillery to distillery, they all have a different taste to them. American history with a French accent, the trail to Machu Picchu, and the national drink of Scotland. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One of Public Radio's favorite historians joins us in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Sarah Val explains how there probably wouldn't have been a United States without the help of the French. We'll get to know why the Marquis de Lafayette became an American hero, as well as the namesake for many American towns, squares, and boulevards. And friends from Scotland raise a glass with us with tips for touring the Scotch whiskey tasting rooms across their country. That's a little later in the hour. As an editor at National Geographic, Mark Adams figured the centennial of Hiram Bingham's famous find at Machu Picchu deserved a special treatment. After all, it was his magazine that devoted a special issue in 1913 to what was considered one of the greatest archaeological finds of the 20th century. Mark thought it would make a great story to revisit the perilous jungle and mountain route Bingham took a hundred years earlier. The only problem was, up until then, Mark had never even slept in a tent. Mark Adams wrote his book, Turn Right at Machu Picchu, about his adventure, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about it. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. Set the scene. Who was Hiram Bingham, and and what did he discover? So Hiram Bingham is a a history lecturer at Yale in the early part of the 20th century. You know, this is sort of the golden age of exploration. People are going off to the South Pole and, and doing things like that, finding rivers in Africa. You know, Bingham is very driven. He wants to make a name for himself, and he focuses on South America. He's in South America in 1909, and he hears the story of the lost city of the Incas, which was supposedly a mountaintop to which the Incas ran with all sorts of treasure when the Spanish conquistadors invaded with Pizarro in 1532. Supposedly, the trees grew over, and, you know, this this great treasure was lost forever, So he hears this story and decides he's going to come back in 1911 and look for the lost city of the Incas, which he knew under the name of Vilcabamba. And he spends that summer looking for Vilcabamba, and he goes to three separate locations. And along the way, he hears a tip that there's an interesting set of ruins on a sort of mountain ridge along the Urubamba River outside of Cusco in Peru. And this innkeeper takes him up there, and he says, well, what do you think? And he squints, and he can't see it at first, and then he looks, and boom, there's Machu Picchu. And he's Hmm. maybe, maybe not the first non-Peruvian to see the ruins of Machu Picchu. Wow. You know, we we say Hiram Bingham discovered it, but it was well-known by local people. He just discovered it. Yeah, I mean, when he he got up there, there were three families up there living, you know, growing peppers and tomatoes in the ruins of Machu Picchu. Oh, man. It must have just blowing him away. And, but you didn't just accidentally get there. He had to hike quite a ways to get there. Now, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 2,000 <laughs> feet up from the river. So he, you know, he put in a full day's work. The thing that he did, though, that was so smart was he brought his camera with him. 
And this is the early days of National Geographic magazine. He goes to meet Gilbert Grosvenor at National Geographic, who's the great mind there. And Grosvenor immediately sees the potential of Machu Picchu, sends Bingham back in 1912. They give it a whole issue. Wow. You know, even with a fold-out of the ruins. And that's what makes Machu Picchu famous. And he was a professor at Yale, right? So he had credibility and... He was a lecturer at Yale, yeah. They, the funny thing is they, they had denied him a full professorship. Hmm. So uh, he was a little bit more driven because of that. Describe your mission, because a lot of people know about Machu Picchu and everything, but yeah. you were more looking at Hiram Bingham's experience in actually roughing it and imagining what it would yeah. like to get there 100 years ago. What was your agenda there? Well, you know, I was working as an editor at National Geographic Adventure magazine, the late lamented travel magazine. It was weird because I would, you know, be passing judgment on things like camp stoves and sleeping bags and such. And I'd never actually slept in a tent. So I thought, you know, I'm 41 years old. If I'm ever going to go out and have any sort of adventure, now's the time to do it. You know, my wife is from Peru. I saw the 100th anniversary of Bingham was coming up, and I thought, you know, this is a chance to go mm-hmm. down there and see how much of what Bingham saw is still the way it was and how much has changed. And the very surprising answer was not much has changed. Once you get outside of the you know, mm-hmm. immediate vicinity of Machu Picchu and, and all the tourism infrastructure that's there, you know, you've got guys who are digging rows to plant potatoes the same way they did in 1700. Hmm. And when I went down to the jungle to Espiritu Pampa, which is the site of the Vilcabamba, the lost city, the head archaeologist there told me, if guys with bowl cuts wearing dresses come out of the jungle, run. (laughs) (laughs) Because they live by their own rules, and some of them have never seen a white man. And that was probably advice given to Bingham also. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's within 50 miles of Machu Picchu. You wrote, Bingham started out as a martini explorer and turned yes. out to be a real adventure. What's that and how so? That was a term that my guide, John Liebers, came up with. You know, he was thinking of a guy he knew who, at the end of the day, liked to have a nice chilled glass of vodka. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, you know, if you're going to be somewhere where you have ice to chill a glass of vodka, that's not a real adventure. And that's where we got into the discussion of what is the difference between a tourist and what is a traveler. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Adams, and his book is Turn Right at Machu Picchu. Mark's website is markadamsbooks.com. Hey, Mark, when you're doing something like learning about Machu Picchu and trying to get an appreciation of it, I would think you do some general study to gain an appreciation of pre-Columbian civilizations in general as they relate to Europe before 1492. Because mm-hmm. I always feel like we think that we're going into primitive zones when in actuality some of these civilizations were arguably as sophisticated as the civilizations that these European conquistadors were coming from. Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, for a long time historians said that because the Incas did not have the wheel and they did not have a written language, they were not a real civilization, even though they had conquered the largest empire ever known in the Western Hemisphere. In recent years, they've realized that they were just using a different system of record keeping. They had these things called quipus, which were sort of knotted colored cords made of different fibers. We don't know 100% how these things work because during the Spanish Inquisition, most of them were confiscated and burned. I think there are only 800 or so known in the entire world right now. The secret weapons of the Incas were A, engineering. You know, look at the ruins of Machu Picchu. There are earthquakes down there, and those Mm. buildings are made, as they say in Peru, to dance. 
You know, they don't oh, fall yeah. down because they're constructed to dance, even though the stones are so close that you can't fit a credit card between two of them. Wow. The other secret weapon of the Incas was organization. They were the greatest accountants of the ancient world. When the Spaniards arrived in 1532, the Incas had storehouses filled with food and clothing to last for 20 years. And they had these quipus keeping records of everything that they had. And the Spaniards were just blown away. They're like, this is the most organized place we've ever seen in our entire lives. Does Machu Picchu align with the sun like Stonehenge does? You know, it's it's very interesting. There's an anthropologist named Johann Reinhard who discovered that, you know, Machu Picchu is probably what we call a sacred landscape. You mm-hmm. know, the mountains are positioned in certain places. The buildings are constructed along certain sun lines for the solstice. If you go there on June 21st and stand above what's called the Torreon, the, the most impressive building at Machu Picchu, it's like Indiana Jones. There's a beam of light that mm. comes through a rectangular window and shines a perfect rectangle on this sort of base, this stone base that something has obviously been cracked off of. We don't know what it was. Mm. It may have been a statue of the emperor who had Machu Picchu built. But it's just so incredible the way the sun shoots down certain corridors mm-hmm. on certain important days of the year. So it's not just um, hocus pocus or accidental. They understood no, this no, no, and they no, designed no. this with that in mind. And even if we don't Absolutely know why, not. it is really quite astounding. They chose the site and then they designed it on top of that. God, that is just mind-blowing. Reading, you know, through your book, Turn Right at Machu Picchu, you, you do get a sense that this is sort of a romantic quest of, of Hiram Bingen, and it's just, it's a fascinating story. Now, we've got this legendary city of gold. Just mm-hmm. how much gold and silver are we talking about? What happened to the gold? Um, describe the scene just in Incan archaeology in general, and was there gold at Machu Picchu? Was that a repository for all of this gold? Here's what we don't know. No major cache of gold was ever found. Bingham found, I think, one single bracelet of gold, even though there are rumors in Peru that he took, you know, truckloads, trainloads of gold out. There was someone who was at Machu Picchu, a German named Augusto Burns, in the 1860s. And he had some sort of mining prospectus, which may have been sort of a cover to try to get stuff out of Machu Picchu what they call a waquero, a guy who, you know, steals grave sites. Mm-hmm. Whether he got anything out of there, we can't know. Whether there was originally any gold up there, we can't know. I mean, those those hills, all of those sites in Peru and, and, you know, pretty much everywhere around the world, you know, have just been picked clean by grave robbers over the centuries. But Bingham was very good at bringing artifacts back because that was a, quite a scandal with uh, Yale. Bingham brought back like thousands of actual pre-Columbian artifacts from the England civilization. He brought back a lot of artifacts. He brought back some pottery and he brought back human remains. Um, and I think that was a very touchy subject. The ironic thing is that Bingham may have brought back artifacts that he purchased from an estate owner near Machu Picchu that came from Machu Picchu, but we don't know because grave robbers may have gone up there, taken them, brought Ah. it down to this estate owner. And those are the most beautiful things he actually brought back from Peru because the site had been pretty much picked clean. They probably just got dispersed all over Peru over the ages. Absolutely. By people picking up shiny stuff and selling it to rich people. And those are things that Yale is actually allowed to hang on to because he bought them legally. But in 2011, for the 100th anniversary, they had to send back all the other stuff that Bingham took while, you know, on assignment from National Geographic. You approached Machu Picchu, um, you made a point to approach it, as Hiram Bingham did, the hard way. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's the old saw about the journey is the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why something like the Inca Trail, if you can get a spot, it's so hard to get a spot nowadays, can be so amazing because this whole area, the Inca Trail, Machu Picchu, was obviously laid out as some sort of pilgrimage. Mm. And if you can do it on foot rather than arriving by train, you know, arrive on train if you have to, but but if you can give it four or five days and make the walk, mm-hmm. you know, it's just that much richer when you walk through that sun gate and you see Machu Picchu for the first time. I mean, the, the revelation of Machu Picchu, anyone who has been there knows, is just, it's like walking into a natural cathedral. Mm. It's just mind-blowing and pictures and video cannot do it any sort of justice. You know, it's one of those rare things like the Mona Lisa that is better in person than you ever imagined it could be. Mark Adams, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, thanks for writing Turn Right at Machu Picchu. Thanks for having me. We'll explore the whiskey trails of Scotland in just a bit. Up next, it's a real treatise. Author Sarah Val joins us to tell us how the Marquis de Lafayette became a universally beloved figure in a contentious United States. That was nearly 200 years ago when political divides between Americans rose to new heights. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. It was a contentious presidential election that threatened to split apart the United States. But a visit from an old friend reminded Americans of who they were and what their revolution was all about. That was in 1824, when Marquis de Lafayette from France was invited back to America. A generation earlier, he served as a hero in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Lafayette was a close friend of George Washington and even named his son after him. On his return to America a generation later, Lafayette was welcomed back as an old friend by more than half the population of New York City. Author Sarah Val believes that Lafayette still has a lot to tell us about who we are as a nation. She's written Lafayette in the somewhat United States and joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to remind us of one of the great figures in the founding of our nation who just happens to come from France. Sarah, welcome. Hi. Hey, you know, when you talk about Lafayette, he's, he's a figure in the Revolutionary War, but in your book, you, you make a big deal about an amazing scene in 1824. That was a generation later, a generation after we won our independence. And you describe how half of New York City came out to see him, to welcome him back from France. Why would it be such a big deal for a Frenchman to come back a generation later? He did come back as an older gentleman, and he was invited back by President Monroe on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the Revolution. So kind of to start ginning things up for the patriotic fervor, you know, that I guess those of us who lived through the bicentennial will recall a bit, you know. He was also at that point in 1824 when he arrived um, back in New York Harbor, he was the last living general from the Continental Army. So he was he was the last of those guys. And James Monroe was the last president who was one of the founding fathers. You know, James Monroe, had he had crossed the Delaware with George Washington and all that. So it was kind of a, a celebration of what the country had become. But there was a, this definite nostalgic element to it. And also, because he was a Frenchman and he came over as a teenager to volunteer with Washington's army, he kind of belonged to everybody. So there wasn't, there, he wasn't a northerner or a southerner, you know. And also he had kind of been 
almost adopted as George Washington's son or son figure. And so um, he was so well-beloved, and, and he he was basically a, a celebrity. And it was a huge big deal that it was a tour around all of the states, and every night was a party. There was a, a souvenir racket, you know, with, like, gloves with his face on them or commemorative plates or songs, you know, every town he would enter into a town and there would be a a new song written about his entrance into that town. And it was a really big deal. And in fact, that's kind of how I got onto the topic because I once went to Herman Melville's house in uh, the Berkshires. And on display in one of the cases is the little dress that Melville's wife wore as a baby when she was presented to Lafayette when he was in Boston. And and I also didn't know about this return trip. And so it turned out to be this huge touchstone for a whole generation of Americans. So in 1824, was was the country in need of, was it, I mean, we're always thinking about how divided our country is now. Was there a sense that this man, he's, like you said, he's not North, he's not South, he didn't represent a particular party. He just represented America, didn't he? Yeah, he landed here pretty much smack dab in the middle of what's arguably the most rancorous presidential election in our history, the election of 1824. And it was this very weird election where for the first time people were going to have to elect a president who wasn't a founding father. And in fact, that election had to be decided in the House of Representatives because there wasn't. Andrew Jackson won the popular vote. Imagine what that's like. Someone could, you know, win the popular vote and not become president because um, he didn't have a clear electoral majority. And so it had to be decided in the House of Representatives. So that whole trip as Lafayette's kind of traveling around There's all this uh, really mean commentary in every newspaper and uh, the whole country's divided. And when the election was after the election happened and there wasn't a president, you know, they run into these Jackson supporters in Pennsylvania and they're like, oh, if the House doesn't give Jackson the presidency, we're taking our bayonets to Washington. So this sounds kind of parallel to Trump, although Trump won and Jackson, who was the famous populist back then, he lost. Yeah. I mean, it kind of pains me to say this as someone who's part Cherokee, but... That's sort of a, an insult to Andrew Jackson. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it was, everyone was all up in arms. And in fact, uh, Lafayette had this young secretary who was with him who wrote this great diary of their trip. And, and they meet these guys in Pennsylvania who are like, if our guy doesn't win, we're marching on the Capitol and we're oh bringing goodness. our bayonets. And then the uh, House of Representatives in what became known as the corrupt bargain gave John Quincy Adams the presidency. And... There was this great moment that Lafayette is there to witness in Washington when there's the party for Adams and Jackson comes in. And everyone's like, oh, my God, what's he going to do? And he goes over and he shakes Adams' hand. And at that moment, the secretary sees those guys who said, we're bringing our bayonets, you know. And he goes over and asks, like, so should I be ready for you guys to, you know, start shooting up the joint? I'm paraphrasing. He was French. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no. You know, so was, uh, we're, that, a, we're, that was just talk. And the well, uh, we dodged a bullet then. Literally, yeah, our literally. Whole country. I mean, the Frenchmen and these are guys who had just lived through the French Revolution are so worried about all this rhetoric. But uh, the Frenchman, he said, in America, the violence in the newspapers stays in the newspapers, which wasn't so true of revolutionary no, yeah, France. No way. Sarah Val is a best-selling author and perennial favorite on public radio in the USA. To date, she's written six bestsellers about American history and culture. 
Sarah's also the guest editor of an anthology called The Best American Non-Required Reading of 2017. Sarah's joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to discuss her most recent title, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. We have links to Sarah's books with this week's show and more from today's interview at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, he's a Frenchman, and he's so important in American history. This, this is quite unique. Was he just, like, great on the battlefield, or, or what was his magic back in the Revolution to be such an influential figure? He was very young. He was 19 when he came over here. He came from a military family. His family was involved in the French army going back to Joan of Arc and the Crusades. And at that time, when our revolution started, Europe was momentarily at peace. And so all of these professional soldiers in France, they needed a job. And so they were coming over here in droves. And Lafayette was unique in that he was a nobleman. So these are noble sons that have their, they're ready to go to war and there's just there's nothing going on. must be frustrating. Right. I mean, it was definitely <laughs> frustrating for George Washington, who is like, this is evil. These guys have no skin in this game. I don't know what to do with them. They come over. They don't speak English. They want to be officers. And that's how he felt about Lafayette at first, too. But Lafayette was just so gung-ho. I mean, this kid just wanted in the fight. And he just was constantly volunteering. And he worked so hard. And, and you know, at this point in the Revolution, through the whole revolution, through the war, Washington's troops are just deserting him in droves. And here's this kid who just wants to do as much as he can. Hmm. So now, could you say no Lafayette, no United States? I mean, is it possible? I wouldn't that- say that. I will. I am confident in saying no help from France, no United okay. States. What are some examples of the personalities that you were surprised to find as you researched your book. I mean, one thing about George Washington, a person I never really identified with that much, one reason he and Lafayette became so close was because pretty much the whole war, Washington's supposed friends are trying to fire him and replace him with someone else. So that's when I sort of identified with Washington the first for the first time, you know, especially coming out of journalism. You're just always sitting around waiting to get fired. And that was basically Washington's experience. And here, besides Lafayette was so, you know, committed to the war, he was also just committed to Washington. And their letters read like love letters. That's basically what they are. Washington needed Lafayette. Oh, yeah. I mean, he needed bucking up, let's say. What, he was like a 19 years old, just kind of a French swashbuckler? Yeah, but he, I mean, he had trained at Versailles. So he actually had more military training than most of the Continental Army at 19. Fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Vowell, and her new book is Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Holger's on the line from Jefferson in Oregon. Holger, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Uh, My question is this. I read all about Lafayette and Washington. I've been to Mount Vernon and and various things, but I have never found out what happened to Lafayette during the French Revolution. Uh, Because he was a nobleman, he didn't get his head chopped off. Mm. uh, You know, where was he all this time? Was he in exile? Yeah, not getting his head chopped off was a definite goal of his. And he succeeded, unlike some of his friends. So what happened was, because Lafayette was the symbol of revolution when he comes back to France, and he's this, you know, hero, 
And he was one of the people involved in the beginning of the French Revolution. But remember how the French Revolution kind of takes that turn and it gets really... They start cutting off their heads uh, of their yeah, own friends. Yeah, it gets really ugly and uh, more and more radical. And, you know, if you have any kind of um, association with the clergy or the nobility, you know, yeah. I just made the symbol that's no use on the radio <laughs> of the head. I'll do the sound effect. And so Lafayette, he tried to escape... France, and he was caught, and he gets thrown into this uh, Austrian prison, and he was in prison for several years until uh, Napoleon busted him out. Lafayette's wife's family, she was also even fancier nobility than him. A lot of her relatives were killed in the guillotine, and after the revolution, when they came back, she helped establish the cemetery in Paris called Picpus Cemetery. It was basically just a mass grave where a lot of nuns and nobility were thrown into this pit, and she helped establish it as a cemetery. And every 4th of July, there's this very patriotic, (laughs) solemn ceremony where the French military and representatives from the American military change the American flag that flies over Lafayette's grave. So Lafayette's grave is still a, a place of um, honor and respect? In, yeah, in, supposedly in he's, he was buried under some dirt from uh, Bunker Hill. And you know the famous thing about that cemetery was um, when our expeditionary forces under General Pershing come come to France's aid in World War One. one of uh, Pershing's officers famously said, Lafayette, we are here, because Lafayette becomes the symbol of Franco-American friendship, which has its ups and downs through history. But more than 100 years later, Lafayette, we are still here. Mm-hmm. So, But basically, he was um, pretty lucky not to lose his head. Yeah. But he spent a few years in prison. He did. There you go, Holger. Thank Bye, you, Holger. Sir. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Val, her book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Sarah, it's interesting to think about, from an English point of view, what did they think when they looked at America, how we were fighting the revolution? I mean, I think, you know, the old story is they just thought they were a bunch of bumpkins. But as early as 1775, the British leadership is writing back to uh, London saying, you know, this is going to be harder than we thought. In, my, in a way, my favorite hero from the Revolutionary War is Henry Knox because he was this kid who was a bookseller. He owned an independent bookshop in Boston. He knew there, were, there was all this ordinance like uh, cannons and artillery and stuff at Fort Ticonderoga, which Uh is, you know, hundreds of miles away over the Berkshire Mountains. And when Boston was under siege, he told Washington, I'll go get that weaponry, you know, (laughs) this bookseller. And uh, Washington's basically like, sure, kid, go ahead. Go for it. (laughs) And then suddenly, you know, a few weeks later, Henry Knox and his brother have built all these weird sleds to haul all these cannons over the Berkshire Mountains in winter back to Boston. And Washington has them um, in the middle of the night put up on top of this hill pointing down at Boston where the British are ensconced, you know, and they, they wake up and they see all these cannons pointing down at them and they get on a ship for Canada right away and are out of there, you know. And Henry Knox becomes the head of the artillery. Of a wonder kid. Yeah, but he was a bookseller. As travelers, let's just talk travel for a moment. Sure. If you want to go to the sites of the American Revolution, what are some of the, the great images and artifacts and collections that you'd recommend? Well, let's see. From the Franco-American standpoint, you know, the high point of that alliance is at Yorktown when the French and American forces gather and get Cornwallis to surrender. 
And so there at Yorktown, there's Yorktown Battlefield where there's a French cemetery. Actually, there were more French sailors and soldiers at Yorktown than American ones. Mm. So um, that's a great battlefield. It's a national park to visit. With a, with a information center to give mm-hmm. you some Yeah, context. and they also have Washington's tent, his military tent there, which wow. is pretty cool. Also, obviously, Independence Hall. You can't forget Independence Hall. You wrote that there's a, a cool quote by Ben Franklin. <laughs> oh, well, when they had the Constitutional Convention after the war, Washington, the chair he was sitting in, it's probably my favorite artifact from that era, Ben Franklin said while they were, you know, these months of bickering like about what the Constitution was going to be and what was going to be in it, he would look at Washington's chair and the carving of the sun on the back of Washington's chair, and Franklin would wonder, is it a setting sun or a rising sun? Meaning, like, <laughs> is this the end of this experiment or the beginning? And and Franklin said, you know, once they finally had this document cobbled together that it is a rising sun. It's amazing to think that there are these artifacts that survive, and, and you write about an artifact which is fascinating to me, and it was the key from the Bastille. Oh, and yeah, it ended up in, in the uh, United States. That's in Mount Vernon because Lafayette... He was in charge of, like, right at the beginning of the revolution, he was in charge of this kind of this police force around Paris. And one of the things he was in charge of was the dismantling of the Bastille. Which is the big stony prison that the uh, revolutionaries tore down, mostly symbolically, to commit themselves to. Yeah, and he sends the key to Washington saying, like, we're doing it. We're revolting. You know, look at this. And The key to the Bastille is now, and where is it exactly in the United States? It's in Mount Vernon in Washington's house, and it's in kind of the hallway at Mount Vernon. You can see it on the tour. Oh, I love it. You have to look for it real, like, when you go on that tour, I don't know if you've been on the Mount Vernon tour, but they really shovel you through there. I mean, <laughs> I've had burrito orders that took longer than my tour of Mount Vernon, I think, but you, it's in there. It's you just have there. to be focused. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Val. Her book is Lafayette in the somewhat United States. And, and Sarah, you wrote in your book that nowadays Lafayette is a place more than a person. Yeah, it was after that trip of his in 1824 and 25, everything started getting named after him. Towns and counties. And I mean, there was this monument to him in Pennsylvania near the Battle Brandywine site, um, which is, you could also visit, that was, I think, built in 1895, you know, after he'd been dead for decades. And 5,000 people show up to, you know, the inauguration of this, it looks like a lamppost in, like, Nowheresville country, Pennsylvania. So he was a really big deal. But I was I was also going to say about the places named after him, to me the most meaningful is Lafayette Square or Lafayette Park across from the White House. And this has been, since the suffragists, you know, a kind of capital of protest. And it's mm-hmm. where we, the people, yell at our presidents because it's right across from the White House. It's where the suffragists yelled at Woodrow Wilson And ever since then, it's where we protest and try to get our president's attention and not just us. People from other countries where they would get arrested for such behavior come to protest when their leaders are in town. And so maybe just think about that if maybe you don't like who lives um, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now. Just know that basically that person always has to live across from almost like the embodiment of an internet comment section, you know? <laughs> Lafayette. George H.W. Bush, oh. <laughs> you know, was complaining about those damn drums while I was trying to have dinner, you know, protesting the Gulf War. So whoever becomes president has these noisy neighbors always, and it's the ones in Lafayette Park. Sarah Vowell, 
author of Lafayette in the somewhat United States. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman. I'm taking this horse by the reins, making red coats, weather with blood stains. And I'm never going to stop until I make him drop a brand of mother's cattle and remain down. We'll cap off today's travel with Rick Steves with the help of three tour guides from Scotland. They'll share tips for learning to appreciate their country's whiskeys like a real Highland connoisseur. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Me lena Penny, ma vos delfos, ke daxidevo meton Rick Steves. That was Greek. I'm Penny from Delphi, Greece, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Me lena Penny, ma vos delfos, ke daxidevo meton Rick Steves. The history of Scotland is heavy on battles. For centuries, there have been bloody fights pitting families against one another, clan against clan, workers against factory owners, and a lot of reasons for holding a grudge against the English. But one tradition that most of the Scots seem to heartily agree on is their admiration for a weed ram of good Scotch whiskey. You can find expert distillers crafting their own special varieties in the Highlands, in the islands, and in the cities of Scotland. And to help you tour the tasting rooms of Scotland like an expert, we're joined now by three tour guides, Brian Hay, Anne Doig, and Liz Lister. Cheers, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I just want to talk about Scotch and the Scottish heritage. Brian Hay, what's the big deal about Scotch in Scotland? Well, it is our national drink. There are many other countries that produce whiskey. In Scotland, we spell our whiskey without an E, and I think everybody else spells it with an E, W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. We have no E. (laughs) Where it actually came from, nobody will ever quite know, but the earliest recordings we have of there being production of malt whiskey uh, sort of ended the 1400s. And it is just a huge commercial business for Scotland and has taken off hugely in the last 10 years, 12 years with emerging markets. Emerging markets meaning what? Uh, Coming from markets that have opened up, particularly with the breakdown of uh, Eastern Europe, what was of Union Russia, huge importer now of uh, Scottish whiskey. So too is China, which is an open market. And these emerging markets, Brazil, India, these places as well. Is that because the brand Scotch whiskey is just so good or is it actually better, Anne? Is it actually better? Yeah. Oh, of course it's better. (laughs) (laughs) But it it definitely is a status symbol. Scotch whiskey. Uh, Turkey and Greece. Yeah, and Japan. Yeah, as apart from just blended whiskey. A Scottish malt whiskey, a single malt, is a big status symbol in these countries. Yeah. Now, you're all Scottish tour guides, and I would imagine when when you take your groups around and your tourists around, they're all checking out the Scotch. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, and you can be candid with me personally. What do you think about Scotch when you're when you're uh, enjoying a drink, uh, Liz Lister? Well, it wouldn't be my drink of choice, but I must confess that when we take um, tourists around Scotland, I love the theatre of whiskey tasting. You know, you go to Italy and you have wine tasting. In Scotland, you're looking at the legs of the whiskey, the colour of it, the smell, and then the signs of releasing the flavours from it. So even if you don't particularly love it, the idea of sitting, sipping a scotch by a, a roaring fire you know, in some small pub somewhere, it's its very definitely a theatre. It almost makes you want to speak like Robbie Burns. Absolutely. <laughs> well... Whiskey and freedom gang together, Together. said Mm -hmm. Robert Burns. Yeah, Scotch (laughs) whiskey is inspired poets, very much part of our tradition. You know, I took the literary tour in Edinburgh, which Mm -hmm. is a wonderful tour, and they go from pub to pub, and you've got these uh, actors and actresses uh, quoting great Scottish literature, and the big discussion was what came first, the love of uh, Scotch or the the love of literature, because they kind of go hand in Mm -hmm. hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think the love of Scotch whiskey, I would actually say there's a... 
there's a bit of a, a legend that the original whiskey or uskabar came in the 6th century with the Irish. Uskabar, what is that? Uskabar is Gaelic for the water of life. Whiskey is the Anglified version of the Gaelic, which came from Ireland originally. Uskabar. B-H-A, Uskabar. So it becomes whiskey. The water of life. Literally like translated it. Yeah. it means the water of life. Oh, yeah. right. And it was thought that it was first distilled by the monks for medicinal purposes. Well, Still take it for medicinal the, purposes of, today. we got a lot to thank the monks for over the centuries, I think. Brian, what's your take personally on Scotch whiskey? Um, I think I'd have to agree with Anne. It wouldn't be my drink of choice. And I would fully accept that I'm not a connoisseur of whiskey, but... I would say the times I love a whiskey is when I've been outdoors, maybe a good walk up a hill and it's cold and you come in and as uh, Liz said, you put the fire on and it has got a lovely warming taste. The fascination of the whiskies is that go from area to area, distillery to distillery, they all have a different taste to them. So you can distinguish that even if you're not a connoisseur and a lover of whiskey? Yes, you can. And can you distinguish the taste as well as the quality? Do you know what a good whiskey would taste like? I probably Mm. wouldn't. Uh, But taste-wise, you 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 could tell just from the distilling process, the yeast that's been used. So none of you are are huge whiskey consumers yourself, but what sort of place has it had in your family heritage when you think about your grandparents and this sort of thing? What was it like, Anne? (laughs) Well, I was going to say... Um, they used to say that uh, whiskey was used for trading, like a currency. They just traded with it. And I would say that was used up to the present day because my father was a bank manager. And if he passed a customer on to a lawyer or an insurance agent, they didn't use commission or anything vulgar like money. It was cases of single malt whiskey. And my father always had a lot of single malt whiskeys in the cupboard. They would trade and he, it. Yeah, it was like it was like a currency. It wasn't commissions when you passed on customers. It was single malt whiskey. So you'd that thank somebody thing. with some nice single exactly. malt whiskey. Is single malt is that is that? That's the Rolls Royce, really. It's not a blended one. It's the one that's pure. It comes from one distillery, and they've all got there's different areas. They've all got different characters. So my father would wax poetical about you can smell the heather on the breeze in this one, and you salt <laughs> from the sea. <laughs> Because where it's stored and where it's the water affects all the characters. I like that. Now, you know, because <laughs> I'm going to all these places around Europe and tasting the beer and tasting the wine and all this. And when I'm in Scotland, I go to a pub and the treat for me is to strike up a conversation with a Scottish person at the bar because they go to the public house to be public and talk. And the easy entree to a conversation is help me appreciate Scottish whiskey. Mm. And the pub will have 20 or 30 different Scotch whiskeys on the list. And you can have that person be your own sort of guide. And it's very easy to taste the, uh, the, the character. The character. The, yeah. The, but there, there is also a snobbery about it in that all these bars will very much promote the malt whiskey. Uh-huh. In actual fact, the major export is blended whiskey. And a blended whiskey has a secret recipe like Coca-Cola. And they say that malting whiskey is a science, but blending whiskey is an art. Ah, so that would be giving the little extra special that one blend yeah, over another. Yeah, you have a, a person who's called the nose, and it's all done by using the recipe, and then this nose smells the whiskey to make sure that there's a consistency in each mm. of the blended whiskies. You know, when you come to Scotland, it's on every tourist list. You know, you've got to do the whiskey distillery tour or something like this. And in Edinburgh, you got the, the High Street, the Royal Mile. Brian, what are the whiskey stops on the, on the Royal Mile that you would say we should be aware of? Caddenhead is probably the best known of the malt whiskey shops, but there's three or four going down the Royal Mile. And they will, if you're obviously interested in tasting the malt whiskeys, they will give you small tastes of them. They will talk it through with you. Very, very good shops. 
There's one on, I think it's Bank Street, the Whiskey Rooms. The Whiskey yeah, Rooms, yes. They'll give you, you know, if you have several takes, yeah. Yeah. you might have to pay for it. Also on the Royal Mile, you also have the Scotch Whiskey Experience. Now, it's a bit Mac Disney. Um, you mm. go through, you go round in a barrel. So if you can't get to distillery, you can do that. But what it does have is the largest collection of whiskies in the world. They were bought by a Brazilian and when he decided to sell his collection, he offered it first to the Scottish whisky distilleries who've banded together and bought this collection, huh. which is on show. And it also does an excellent whisky tasting. So that's the mm. Scotch whisky so that's experience. The, that's the touristy Scotch yeah. whisky experience up by the castle. Yes. People, yeah. people joke they call it Malt Disney. Yes. And um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's fun. But I, I think to find a place like Caddenheads where you yes, can sit definitely. down with an expert without all these tour groups around you would make uh, a lot of sense. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Scotch whiskey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Casey's calling from Wilsonville in Oregon. Casey, have you been to Scotland and tasted the whiskeys? I have not, but uh, I was planning on it this year. Pretty excited to go uh, finally taste it at the, uh, the home locations. <laughs> so where are you going to be traveling, and, and what would your question be for our guides? Uh, we're going to be... Uh, flying into Edinburgh, and I would really like to get out to Islay and uh, up to the Orkneys to like Kirkwall and maybe try some of those distilleries. And just kind of want to know what the best place and best way to get out to the, to the islands would be. So we're talking way in the north of the Highlands, is that right? The and and beyond the Orkneys, beyond Orkneys, beyond. Northern way Isles. Isla is southwest. You're a long way apart. You've probably chosen the two furthest away parts. Islands. Yeah. But Isla's got the most distilleries in Scotland. I think there's yes, eight, yes. eight or mm-hmm. nine. Very robust. So that's the southwest sort southwest. of the jumping off from Glasgow over there. Yes, you drive down. And then, so that's I-S-L-A-Y, and there you've got the biggest variety of distilleries, is that right? Yeah. And but, would they welcome guests? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. All of them but the, do. the important thing about the whiskies coming from there is that they very much have the, the scent of the sea, the iodine from the seaweed. So they have a very, very smoky, distinctive flavour on uh, iodine. See, that's what's really, really so accessible about whiskey tasting is you can taste that. If it's made near the sea, you can taste mm-hmm. the sea. And then are there distilleries up in the Orkneys? There's two. There's one, Scapa Flow, and the other one's not the Macallum. What is it? It's... One of the Highland top Park. ones, Highland Park. Highland Park. Highland yeah. Park. Yeah, that's one of the top rated by the you know the whiskey connoisseurs. Highland Park and the Macallum is another one, mm. which is a space side one. But there are two distilleries in Orkney. Orkney is really fantastic if you're interested in archaeology. Orkney is like halfway to Scandinavia, yeah. right? Exactly. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's sort of a mix you're of closer cultures. Closer to Norway. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not one you do for a detour. No, that. <laughs> Casey, have, are you actually going to the Orkneys? Uh, we're we're definitely thinking about it's it. It's a long way up there. That's, it would, uh, yeah, that would be part of the adventure, right? <laughs> that's part of the adventure. Yeah. Well, but you would have whiskey distilleries from Edinburgh, Glasgow area, going all the way up. Yes. So if uh, you didn't want to go that far, you would still find plenty of distilleries sure. and different types of uh, yeah. whiskies. Never go thirsty, right? Never. Never go thirsty in Scotland, and never mm. be without somebody great to talk to. Casey, thanks for your call. Hey, thank you, Rick. Take care. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Liz Lister and Doig and Brian Hay about Scotch whiskey. And, you know, there's this ongoing thing about Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey. <laughs> Not getting into the quality difference, but what is the physical difference between Irish and Scotch whiskey? Does anybody well, know? Well, Irish whiskey is triple distilled. Triple and, distilled? Yes. And is that something they brag about? Yes, and they think it's much better. And no Scots person wants to admit this, but the art of distilling whiskey probably did come from Ireland in the 6th century. 
big of you to admit that. (laughs) Yeah, my father would be turning his grave because the Scots take a great pride in that ancient tradition of distilling whiskey and the whole story of it, very much part of our culture. Uh But um, yes, the Irish think their whiskey, Jameson's and Bushnell's, much better than ours. But we have, I mean, there's over 300 single malt whiskies, all with a different flavor and character. So that's much much wider sphere of character than, than the Irish whiskey. So I have to say that we win hands down. Sorry. If you like variety yeah. and yeah, <laughs> all the experience, okay. And also all the blended whiskies like Johnny Walker and Chivas Regal and everything, they're all from the marriage of different single malts. So, so they're all Scotch whiskies. Scotch whiskies, Whiskey yeah. without an E. The, <laughs> the definition of a Scotch whiskey is that it has to be stored in a bonded warehouse in Scotland for a minimum of three years to become called Scottish whiskey. Huh. And during that time, there's an evaporation, about 2% per year, and that's called the angel share, where it evaporates into the air. So the longer it's left in the bonded warehouse, the less there is of the original cask of whiskey that was first put down. But an Indian company actually contacted one of the bonded warehouses and asked, they didn't have the storage capacity and the evaporation rate was greater than India, so could they bring in their whiskey and store it in the bonded warehouse in Scotland? But of course they cottoned on that it would then be called Scottish whiskey because it had been stored for three years. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't let them? No. Oh, very important to maintain the brand. Absolutely. And I'm right in saying that a malt whiskey has got to be matured for a minimum of 10. I think it's eight. 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 So So very high standards. This has been so fun to learn uh, about Scotch whiskey from... I learn about Scotch whiskey. (laughs) 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 So fun to learn about Scotch whiskey from our three guides, Liz Lister, Anne Doig, and Brian Hay. One thing I want to be sure is that we travelers, when we go to Scotland, uh, have the right terminology. Do we say Scotch? Scotch whiskey? What's the proper terminology for this drink? Well, it is. That's the praising is Scotch whiskey. It's just that in Scotland, we're maybe a bit arrogant about it. We just call it whiskey because there's no other whiskey apart from Scotch whiskey. So the Scotch is redundant. And before the 18th century, a Scottish man used to be called Scotch. But now it's the legal term for Scotch whiskey. So we don't like to be called Scotch. That's, that's like calling you a pina colada. It's a dream. <laughs> so we like to be called Scots or Scottish. I've know. been confused about that because I, I, I've been a little bit tentative about, do I say this person is, is Scotch? No. There's, there's no, it's Scots. Scotch is a kind or of... Or Scottish. Yeah. But before the 18th century, yeah, you'd say a Scotchman. But ah. s- since they sort of legalized Scotch whiskey and the, the patent, etc., that's a drink. That's the name of a drink. So we right. prefer to be called and Scots. And when I, when I go into a pub in Scotland, I will ask for a whiskey. Or, a whiskey or, or a single malt. Or a dram. Or a dram. A dram. A dram. <laughs> or in Scotland, the tradition, a hoff and a hoff. <laughs> what would a hoff and a hoff be? <laughs> a hoff. Traditionally, a Scotsman would sit in the bar with a dram of whiskey and a half pint of beer. A, a half half and a half. half. A half and a half. <laughs> and if you ask for a scotch, you might be given sellotape because that's what we always think of as scotch being scotch. Tape. scotch so tape. you can. Uh, <laughs> so you could be disappointed. Very important fine points of the local dialect. <laughs> I'd like to have just finished with an opportunity for each of you to share how whiskey and Scottish literary heritage, because Scotland is just so rich with literary heritage. Is there any Robbie Burns quote or any sort of uh, blessing that you can share that might tie in with this discussion? Well, that quote just comes off immediately as Burns said, whiskey and freedom go together. (laughs) 
and that's the that, but that's there's a lot more. That's just the one that. Well, that came one word you think of a lot of Scotland is freedom, freedom and you freedom, think whiskey, and they go together. Mm. Yes. And, and Robert Burns was an excise man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. What does that mean? An excise customs. Oh, he was um, a yeah, yeah, man. because the big problem was that when whiskey was first distilled in Scotland, it was along the route that the drovers were driving the cattle down to the markets. And then they started to tax the whiskey and the stills became illicit. And the tax man or customs man would go around and try and find these illicit stills. So Rabbi Burns in so, his time was an excise man. So he would know the, the backside of all that. Because so for a long time, uh, sort of 1600s, there were far more illicit stills than there were... Uh, legal ones, and that's why very often they're in very remote parts uh, of to this Scotland. day. Yeah. yeah, so that was all designed to um, mm. keep the taxes from going down to London. That's right. And what also happened is that because it was illicit, a lot of the whiskey was stored for a lot longer than they would have normally stored it. And it was then that they started to discover that the longer that they kept it, the better the taste was. Fascinating. And Hiding it from the tax man. man yes. Act of the union when they put the taxes up. Yeah. We've actually got a loch in central Scotland called Loch Drunkie, where it said that the excise men were coming, so they decided to empty the barrels into the loch, and the loch became so much yeah. alcohol rather than water yeah. that those that were drinking it became drunk. Loch Drunkie. Yeah. This has been so much fun talking about Scotch whiskey from three great Scotch guides, Liz, Anne, Brian. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you in Scotland. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I hope you can join me today in raising a glass to celebrate 12 years of travel with Rick Steves. Last time I was in Scotland, I had the added thrill of an unexpected concert over dinner in a small town where the ferries take you out to the islands off the west coast. Here's a little of what it sounded like. Traditional music is a fun part of visiting Britain and Ireland. Of course, Ireland is beloved for its trad in the pubs, but you'll enjoy plenty of that wonderful Celtic toe-tapping flair in Scotland, too. On my last trip there, on the west coast, over in the town of Oban, a troubadour dropped in to my little restaurant and gave it a delightful musical memory. And he featured the bodron, that traditional drum. It's like a big tambourine without the jangles that you beat with a single furious drumstick while the other hand stretches the skin to moderate the pitch. Here's a little hard-hitting Scottish traditional music you might enjoy. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their studio help this week. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, 
free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.